Welcome to the WIPAR podcast, a project of the Youth Research Lab at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. In the WIPAR podcast, youth participatory action research practitioners discuss the ethical dimensions of conducting WIPAR. In this podcast, we explore issues of co-leading WIPAR, building relationships, power dynamics, and sharing our work together. The Youth Research Lab is located at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education in Toronto or Takaronto, on the traditional territories of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently being cared for by the Mississaugas of the Credit River. You know, I think being really honest, like not everything it can be fully participatory, right? And if we think about it that way and we kind of let that go, I think there's a lot less pressure. My name is Ruben Gastamide Fernandez, and I am the director of the Youth Research Lab and a professor at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Aurora Santiago Ortiz. Uh, Dr. Santiago Ortiz is a social justice education scholar and uh, currently the Lyman T. Johnson postdoctoral fellow at the University of Kentucky. Um, her research focuses on anti-racist feminisms, decolonial perspectives, and participatory action research. And she is uh, the co-founder or one of the co-founders and a member of the community organization Colectivo Casco Urbano de Calle. And that's the project that we will be talking about today primarily. And we are very excited uh, and we congratulate her uh, on her appointment at the University of Wisconsin that this coming fall, she will be joining uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison as an assistant professor of gender and women's studies and she connects in Latinx studies. So congratulations, first of all. Thank you so much, Ruben. Thank you for having me here. I'm very excited to, to talk about um, some of the work that I've been doing and to just engage and have a dialogue. So thank you Maybe. for having me. Yeah, no, it's, it's great to have you here. And, you know, you and I have been having some of these conversations for a long time, uh, starting with discussions about solidarity and how solidarity overlaps with participatory action research. And so I'm very excited uh, to talk about some of the challenges and what, what sort of directs some of the ethical commitments that direct um, our work. So why don't you uh, start, I, I, I've known your work and have been following it for a while, but uh, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the kinds of projects that you've been working on uh, where participatory action research plays a central role? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one the biggest project that I've worked on in recent uh, years was actually my dissertation, which was a qualitative and an ethnographic study of participatory action research. And when thinking about and talking about, right, those ethical commitments, um, why I chose to do a study of PAR rather than do PAR as my dissertation is because issues of authorship um, obviously are, are present. So I really wanted to understand the collaborative relationship among differently situated actors. So students, undergraduate students that were taking a PAR class or participatory action 
research class. Myself as the, the professor coming from a US-based institution to Puerto Rico, which is where I am from and grew up, and also the community co-researchers that participated in the PAR projects that we carried out. So broadly speaking, we worked together for a year um, in the academic sense, but the project continue on, continued on. And we got together with some activists, environmental activists, and just community leaders in the um, urban hub of Calle to really look at what the concerns and desires were of that community um, with no real plan because we really wanted it to be community driven. So we had an idea that we wanted to get to know the community that we were working with that was actually adjacent to a college campus, the University of Puerto Rico Calle campus. So it was an opportunity for the students and for myself to really get to know the surrounding community and to, to find out what sort of, of things that they wanted to work on particularly. So it was really up to them. And I can talk a bit about that more um, when we get into the specifics, but um, we carried out three broad projects, which one of them was an oral history project done with women in the community, which um, was made into a virtual exhibit. We did a community center, but because of COVID, which we could also talk about, um, we had to do a virtual um, community center and um, as a result of that course, we started a community organization, which is called the Colectivo Casco Urbano de Calle, because we wanted to do the continue doing the work, which in a lot of ways was actually um, was challenged by COVID during that time. So we couldn't see each other in person and we had to find other ways to conduct this research project and to continue the collaboration um, virtually. Uh, and then later on when we could see each other then continuing on um, in person or hybrid. Um, that's one of the projects. And the second project that I'm working on within my um, postdoc is uh, working with Latinx migrant communities in the Lexington area in designing um, what is called a socio-technical infrastructure, um, which is basically using technology to address their needs. And this, I would not call it a strictly PAR project. I would call it um, a project that draws on the principles of participatory action research, where we co-create um, a sort of platform where that is relevant to the Latinx community, a very heterogeneous community made up of people from multiple countries in Central South America, as well as the Caribbean. Recent migrants and also longtime migrants, um, but we really wanted to, through community dialogues, get their, their participation into a project that they would be able to use beyond that particular study. So right now it is a website, but we also are trying to develop a community um, promoter model. Um, so we want to kind of continue this study into um, training and developing com community co-researchers, um, but also promoters that are able to, to do the outreach in their community in ways that are culturally relevant um, to, to where they live. So those are writ large, those are the two projects that I've been working on lately. Great, great. Thank you so much. And I am really uh, would love to revisit these uh, the conversations about the ways in which you have been using digital 
uh, dissemination strategies. I think that's one of the most interesting and innovative aspects of your work that work that, you know, the mapping work that you've been doing in Calle and it sounds like this work in Kentucky also and I saw about COVID. But it, I think it would be really helpful for our listeners who might not be familiar with Puerto Rico in particular. Maybe if you could say a little bit about Calle, uh, the community that you work with and what drew you to that community um, and to do that work, uh, perhaps just as a way to situate um, that, that project. Yeah, so Calle is located in the central eastern mountainous region of Puerto Rico, which is an archipelago. So it's made up of various islands um, that are inhabited. There are three. And I'll call the bigger island, the main island, is where Calle is located. And that campus emerged in the mid-20th century, around the 50s, in a time of expansion of Puerto Rico's only public university, which has 11 campuses. So originally it was a teaching college, but it was was actually fought for and asked for by the Calle community that they wanted that campus to open. So there was a deep community connection already. And that campus in particular has also been very active. The student um, movement there has been very active in fighting against um, budget cuts and neoliberal austerity measures that have been imposed by a fiscal control board that was um, imposed by the uh, US Congress in 2016. So there is a tradition and a history of very active participation in community matters, a very active student movement that has gone on strike various times to fight these um, austerity uh, measures and also very involved in community life. So they have done a number of initiatives like community kitchens where um, folks that are experiencing precarity can um, get food or trade canned goods for a hot meal or um, as well as a community garden that emerged in the strikes. So people were starting to grow their own vegetables in response to the fact that Puerto Rico imports upwards of about 85, some people say 90% of food. So it's in direct response to uh, food insecurity in Puerto Rico. So that also caught my attention, but also the, the Calle campus of the university has a program where people from the diaspora, from they don't have to be from Puerto Rico, but that want to participate in a sort of program at, the, at their interdisciplinary research institute can teach a research course for a semester or for a year. And students can be co-researchers or um, or research assistants. And the, the approach that I took was I, I wanted students to be co-researchers with me on these projects. So kind of all of those factors conspired and came together and really made that um, Calle a place where I wanted to um, do this kind of community-based work. And because of I knew that there were students that were very committed to doing that work as well, um, I ended up doing my, my field work there, which was teaching this um, interdisciplinary research course. Uh, so interesting. And, and it sounds like a, a, a very different context from where your current work in Kentucky. And I, I'm just curious, like, what are some of the similarities and differences in terms of the communities that you're working on uh, between Calle and the work you're doing in Kentucky now? 
So in Gaillet, for my dissertation, I wanted, I designed a sort of intervention where I really wanted to bring together a critical dialogic methodology called mm -hmm. intergroup dialogue with participatory action research, because both of these methodologies kind of pursue the same goals. They want and look for coalition building for social change. Um, they promote solidarity and they take a collaborative approach to issues of social justice or to liberation. So um, those approaches particularly were attractive to me and intergroup dialogue had been mostly done in campus settings, but I wanted to bring together folks from outside of the university and within the university um, in, in engaging in this methodology because it promotes kind of meaning making across differences um, and really enhances sort of communication skills. So this was also born out of my own preoccupation with a lot of social movements, when there's conflict or when there's differences, people tend to kind of leave the space um, and, and not engage in sort of um, hard conversations. Uh, and that's in my own experience in the past in activist spaces. So I wanted to sort of design this intervention to see what happens when folks engage in these methodologies. And I continue doing that work in the, in the Lexington project as well, um, in engaging in community dialogues and bringing together these elements of PAR and seeing how folks can build trust um, and engage in sort of these reciprocal and mutual practices um, that go beyond like the temporary moment, the temporality of meeting. How can folks continue to use dialogic strategies in their everyday lives, in their relationships, and also how folks build solidarity by doing this collaborative work and engaging in dialogic communication. Mm -hmm. um, so that's those are sort of the intersections of the work. I wanna continue building these sorts of um, interventions in ways that um, show what can happen when they're combined. And, and when you bring folks that are different in terms of socioeconomic status, race, um, immigration status, gender, sexuality, etc. Um, which I found that it does it does really shift ways in, in how we relate to one another. Yeah. I think that's the most important thing for me. Yeah, and, and we're really interested in, in those those differences. I think in particular because so many of the conversations that we've been having uh, through the podcast, um, are really about how each project or different contexts, um, uh, how the ethics that we bring to the work uh, get expressed differently in each of those contexts. Um, and, and we've had many uh, of the participants in the podcast have described, you know, what, is, what, is, what do those ethics look differently when you're doing work in schools versus community centers versus art projects? And you've, you've, you mentioned at the earlier, you know, you, you made reference to sort of the difference between doing participatory action research versus doing ethnographic research about participatory action research. And then you also talked about the difference between, you know, some notion of like pure participatory action research versus participatory inspired action research. And I think that's also something that a lot of a lot of folks who are interested in participatory action research, there's often this question of like, okay, what's pure par, right? Is, is there such a thing as pure par? And when, when and how do we sort of draw on the practices of participatory research in order to shape different kinds of projects? And I, I wonder if maybe you can speak to that a bit by sort of talking to us about what are the ethical commitments that you bring to the work and, and how do these ethical commitments get, get expressed differently? 
depending, you know, based on the different places where you've worked and the different approaches that you've taken. Um, I know that's a big question, but maybe you can uh, give us some examples of what that looks like. So I think like first and foremost, like the ways that folks participate. So if we're doing something that's, I don't want to say pure, but closer to, to the strand of participatory action research that I practice, which is very much based in South American understandings, um, drawing from Orlando Falsborda and the work that he did in Colombia during the 60s and 70s, it's very much a tool for activism and organizing. So I, I view PAR in ways that are further um, certain interests of communities that don't look towards the university for, for that kind of model of change, but look towards what these folks in these spaces are already doing and how can we as people in an academic space become resources or leverage our resources in academic spaces mm -hmm. for the benefit of, of these communities. Um, and to me, the participation component is very important because if there needs to be an opportunity and a space for the folks that are not from the academic space to participate on an equal level. That doesn't mean that we're doing the same kind of work. Mm -hmm. I also think that comes in with that ethical commitment that um, time, who has time, who has the resources and who has the ability many times, because if you're doing this from a course, the students already have time carved out. Mm -hmm. So they have more of the ability to take on more of the tasks. Mm -hmm. But the decision making, um, the part, the participation aspect is equalized. Mm -hmm. It is equitable. Um, when I talk about using elements or, or drawing from is in spaces where there are certain challenges and barriers to equal participation, particularly mm -hmm. around um, how the work is, the, the end product is produced. If you don't have participation in every step of the process from the folks that are outside of the academic space, then I would not call that participatory action research. I could call it action research or having elements of par in it, but mm -hmm. I would not call it that. And also to me, it also shows up in the publishing, right? So I'm mm -hmm. very interested in whatever we produced, whatever knowledge was co-produced, be published in a collaborative way, mm -hmm. which is what um, we've done recently with a piece that we um, are working on for curriculum inquiry. So it is very important that folks do participate in every step of that process. And to me, that is really what um, I consider being more of aligned with the values of participatory action research that I at least practice in my own way. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this question of dissemination is, is one definitely that, that we've that we often like to think about and that I think is quite complicated. And, and of course, I'm you know, familiar with the piece that you have coming out uh, very soon, hopefully, uh, in Curriculum Inquiry, um, which, which uh, was a, a special project. And I'm, I'm interested in how you approach these questions about dissemination. So in addition to writing articles, like the one coming out in Curriculum Inquiry, I know that you've done and you've, you've mentioned already these uh, digital strategies you've been using, um, you know, the mapping, the, the, the virtual map and the, the digital project that you have going on in Kentucky. And I'm wondering how, how you approach these different strategies differently. So what, is, how, what kinds of conversations unfold? 
hold? How do you approach integrating the participants into the decision-making? And how does that vary, for example, like what's the difference between the decision-making project for something like an academic article versus mm-hmm. a decision-making project for something like a website or or, or like a digital, um, yeah, like a digital tool, because I know you've, you've developed a couple of those. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it really does vary from project to project. For example, I, I didn't mention the mapping project and thank you for reminding me. So one of the first um, things that we did when we started out our study of the community of the urban hub was a process of familiarization. So mm-hmm. the students and I started to get to know the community we were working with. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things that the students did was walk the urban hub by foot and take a map and do a structural census of all of the buildings. So that way we knew how many of them were residences, businesses, offices, government agencies, et cetera. And that to them, to the students, they found very useful because they were getting to know the space where they were at. So they weren't coming in like very alien or foreign to the space um, that they were working with. And so that um, project, they ended up writing a report on on it, and that is available online with the map that they used and the report, a sort of a, a sort, you know, showing visually, you know, with graphs like the the distribution and the layout. And that is open to any person that you know wants to see it, and it's on the website. Mm-hmm. And so that was done by the students. And when we were, when COVID happened and we were talking, we wanted to open up a, a, a physical community center. It was actually what the, the suggestion of it being a website was done by one of the community co-researchers. The students took on the weight of creating the website with myself and, and putting the content in. But those decisions were always done through consensus-based processes where we went around and we talked and we discussed like what can we do now um i served as sort of a facilitator in those conversations but not as a decision maker or someone that had the ultimate say Um, it was how do we find a way for what y'all want us to do to make it happen so the students knew already how to make a website so they did that Mm -hmm. and with the oral history project um that was the only project that was sort of pre known that was going to be done at the beginning Mm -hmm. of the semester um, because we were working with another partner originally and they asked us to do something similar but when that um, that fell through we continued with the project but the research questions were designed by the participants like Mm -hmm. the interviewees and the students we had folks come in and talk about oral histories they read about oral histories so they prepared for it that way And the map that was used in that project was the same map that the students used. Um, And we worked with a curator that helped us do that and and set it up as a website. Um, So those, that one, you know, was directly done with the interviewees and there was part, there was collaboration within that. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so those were sort of the different strategies with the Lexington project. Um, the website was designed by d- having done focus groups beforehand with civil society um, folks, but also with these community dialogues in mind, talking to folks about how they get their information, what they need, or what are the gaps of information. Do they know these services exist or not? Um, so it was kind of a scaffolded approach on having different people come in at different um, points of the project. So it really does vary depending on uh, what, what's being done. 
Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I think uh, you know, I remember when we were working with the youth uh, a couple of years ago on on our final project at the beginning of the pandemic, on how um, you know how how the youth in our project were experiencing COVID. You know, we ended up putting two two products out. One was a digital story, one was an article, and even though they were based on the same data and they were sort of in a sense telling the same story how how diff we, we all participated differently in terms of what that actually looked like right so the, the adults played a more a kind of heavier hand on the written one whereas the youth played a heavier hand on the digital one and that mm -hmm. seemed to sort of um allow for the products in the end to be different because uh, they were being shaped by different hands um and you you've talked a little bit about the differences in terms of the the the, the availability so so um, the fact that the students had time to be able to do certain things that perhaps community members couldn't do that. I'm wondering about other kinds of um, power related differences. So for example, um, in what ways in these two projects that you've been working, how do uh, power issues related to gender and or, or race or even, you know, I know even within the Latinx community, you know, race, it's always kind of latent there, even though oftentimes people like to ignore it. But I'm wondering, in addition to the sort of material and, and sort of uh, class context, you know, how, how have some of these challenges, how have you uh, addressed them? Um, how have they manifested themselves and in what ways have they sort of shaped the, the outcome of the work? I think that in in regards to let's say social identity differences, um, that's sort of one one set of of issues that arose, and that also are in conjunction with personal circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, when we were working, as I mentioned earlier, when we were working on the website, the students took up more took on more of the weight of the work. But during the first semester, when we were going through the process of getting to know the folks. That we were working with the non-academic folks, they took a lot more weight of having to tell us, explain to us the story, the context, what's happening in the community. Mm. Um, and because, you know, some of these folks, and, and, and I also want to say that the students were also in very similar precarious situations where some were um, contributing financially to their homes, had three jobs, and had mm -hmm. a lot of obstacles after the, after mm -hmm. the pandemic started where you know some of them connected via phone on zoom so it, it's not so um cut and dry i felt like if anything i was the one who there was a lot of power differentials because i was the professor and there was a power there inherent mm -hmm. that i had to constantly name um and and you know talk about and also the fact that I came from a US-based institution um, where there are more resources in a lot of ways comparatively to Puerto Rico's university. So, mm -hmm. you know, that, but we openly talked about those experiences as well and how they differed. Um, what they mentioned though throughout the process was that none of them felt like their contributions were diminished. They were equally as important. The knowledges that come from outside of the university space were just as equal, just you know, as as any sort of academic work. So that was also very important to always sort of name and have very present. Right. Um, in in the context of the other study with the folks, the community dialogues that we held with the folks in in Kentucky, it got a little complicated because, mm. you know, and, and when you add the dimension of citizenship as well, mm. when you're talking about 
how do you get um, health insurance, for example? A lot of the folks were talking about, well, how do you even get an identification number to begin with? Mm -hmm. And this is something mm -hmm. that had never crossed my mind as mm -hmm. a colonial subject, but as a U.S. citizen. So right. you have to redirect your thinking because you're like, OK, so I cannot ask these questions in the same way. So those power, you know, thinking about those differentials and how they also affect us differently. Yes. Also mentioning there were issues of race that were mentioned. There were issues where we had to deal with in very um careful ways to not alienate the participants in being honest and vulnerable in what they're talking, but at the same time, listening to some very problematic conversations around race relations. So mm -hmm. just trying to build an, a, a space, a container where folks feel comfortable, but also cre we creating community guidelines was very important. And also even things like having dinner, eating together, having not formal workspace and time to kind of, you know, build that, that relationship outside of, of the research. Yeah. Yeah. That element, I think, uh, and, and this is a good, a good way to get back to the conversation about COVID um, because we, we found that that element of the work that is the informal interactions that happen, say around a dinner table, uh, sharing food, uh, in the spaces before and after, right? The interactions were were so important. And, and we've heard from folks who have contributed to the podcast so much how important those interactions are. And in the context of COVID, those spaces largely disappeared, right? There was no longer, when, we, when things were happening on Zoom, we were no longer sharing food. Uh, there's the, the Zoom space really curtails the, or at least we, we found really curtailed the sort of interaction that happens in the in-between spaces, right? The before and after, the kind of socializing, the saying hello, the hugs, the, the how's your family, right? Because Zoom, for, for whatever reason, really sort of doesn't allow for that sort of informal space. And so I'm wondering um, what your experience was shifting to COVID, how COVID sort of um, impacted and, and what were the decisions what were some of the key decisions that you had to make when COVID hit and suddenly you found yourself having to do this work differently and using virtual tools? That's just, it's something that we're interested in, in talking and thinking about. You mentioned it a few times. Yeah, the, the spring or the second semester of the 2019-20 academic year got off to a very rough start in Puerto Rico. In January, we had a series of earthquakes that were um, very intense and, you know, I'm talking about 6.4. Um, so already there was like a level of anxiety among everyone that was like in, it was palpable, you know, because it's pretty horrific to go through that um, being there. Um, and once COVID began, no, no one really had any idea. We thought it was going to be two weeks of online and then we would go back. But I think that the thing that really allowed us to continue, and that's something that everyone talked about constantly, was the fact that we already had built an in-person relationship since September. So mm -hmm. we had been working together for six months. Um, we had new students come in in, in in January, but they had, you know, two months. We would meet once a week um, for three hours. So we had a lot of time together, and then we started having weekend meetings additionally. So we spent a significant amount of time together and we mostly met at one of the co-researchers house. So she would make us food. 
for Christmas, she would make us like this incredible meal of like five mm-hmm. or six things, like, you know, rice and pigeon peas and like pork on a spit. So it was amazing. So that interaction allowed us that when this transition came, it was a lot less felt. And we mm-hmm. felt still the closeness of, of that moment. So much so that class ended in May. And once we knew that we could wear masks and be outside in, in a lot of ways, in July, we started doing our pop-up pantries. Mm-hmm. So we came back together. Um, I think the semester probably ended a little later, like in June. But in July, we started doing this again. And we started doing it in July. We did it in August. And once I left for the U.S., everyone kept doing it in September and October until we had the, the permanent pantry set up. So we had that time before, which helped us continue the work when, mm-hmm. when the pandemic came. Right, right. Another one of the of the themes you and I have been talking about for a long time and that I know is a, it's a big interest for you and that it's also the focus of your article in Curriculum Inquiry is this uh, concept of solidarity, which, you know, nowadays over the last two years, particularly over the pandemic, has become the sort of word that everybody uses for all kinds. Of, I mean, it's always been that, but I think the pandemic has sort of exacerbated and I'm wondering for you, having done this work, and I, I know that solidarity is also sort of a, an important concept in terms of your orientation to this work. What have you learned? So, so what have been in, in the few years, in the years that you've been doing participatory research around this uh, to explore this concept? I'm I'm curious, what have you learned about solidarity? And and and, and I'm particularly curious, do you think solidarity is still a salient and 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 useful idea for thinking about uh not just in general for thinking about social relations but specifically to for thinking about participatory research well to start with the end yes i still very much think that solidarity is is probably for me the main ingredient um Mm -hmm. that is necessary in participatory action research especially because you're working um, with folks that can come from very different um, places, spaces, backgrounds, contexts, et cetera. So I think it's necessary and when you're working across difference in a, in a way that's very kind of grounded in, in understanding that conflict can happen, that, mm-hmm. you know, it's not going to be easy. It will probably be very hard. Um, but I do think that like the approach um and what I've learned, right, in, in, in my time sort of grappling with the concept, but also trying to uh, like concretely learn about how, how to do it, how to apply it and how it's um, developed. I think that a lot of the times when we're doing certain kinds of work, we, we become sort of task oriented and we forget about the relationship building. And I, this, I think it happens in political organizing context and community organ and grassroots. Mm-hmm. We, we're so caught up in like trying to do the things that we forget how to be together. And I think that that's why for me, it will continue being a salient concept. As long as we also live in the world that we live in, where individualism is kind of the modus operandi of, you know, the the context that we live in, I think that solidarity will always be an important counter to the ways that people, you know, a lot of people relate today in sort of those transactional neoliberal ways. So I do think it is very important. I think that it's also very much needed um, 
in my context of Puerto Rico as a way to, to enact a decolonial praxis. Like how do we become, how do we act differently towards one another? And how do, what are the possibilities of that in resisting colonial domination and structures? So um, to me, it's a very concrete thing. And to me, it's still very much important. Um, even though at sometimes it's it's temporary or there's a temporality to, to solidarity. But every time in Puerto Rico, particularly when we see that there's a, a government disaster um, follow, you know, in conjunction with a natural disaster, folks do tend to step up for their neighbors, for people they don't know, for their family, for their friends. So I, I still think it's very much a, a practice that is needed and that, and that we do see it in 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 different places yeah yeah in fact this context of emergency for me what they what they bring into relief is the contrast between solidarity that is that is premised on on a hierarchical order right where where those with privilege attempt to be in solidarity with those without and then solidarity as a kind of uh, uh, practice of reciprocity that is expressed through things like mutual aid you know Mm -hmm. i think that that one of the things that i found really interesting through the pandemic is just noticing the contrast between those two, right, and the way that the, the different top sort of dynamics that that yeah, in, are expressed through that. Um, so thank you for that. And uh, so as you look ahead uh, to your new new position, congratulations again on yeah. your new position. I'm wondering uh, if you what if you have sort of future projects in mind. Uh, what's the future of the Colectivo Urbano uh, Casco de, de Calle? If that if that is continuing, and if you're going to be uh, in, you know, what what do you see it as that, and whether you have some new project brewing that you'd like to share or that you're sort of thinking about? Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for your congratulations. Um, in terms of the Colectivo Casco Urbano de Calle, once as I mentioned, the class was over. We we started two main initiatives for the project. When I say we, I include myself because we actually still meet twice a month virtually. And when I'm in Mm -hmm. Puerto Rico, we end up meeting in person or they meet in person and I meet um, virtually. So that's Mm -hmm. very much still going on. And as you said about mutual aid projects and thinking about solidarity, the projects that we are working on are mutual aid projects. So as I said, first is um, a community pantry. So we ended up occupying an abandoned building, putting up two um, pieces of furniture and where folks can drop off things that, you know, such as non-perishable food and clothing and other folks can pick up. So it's sort of a take, you know, what you need and leave what you can. Um, and that very much drives our work too. It's like, we can give what we can, right? We, we work on our strengths and that's how we contribute. Um, so that's still very much active and we're, and we have new members. We have members that have left. We have members that have joined. We are working with farmers who are helping us with a garden that we started too. We have an urban garden, which is really cool. Um, so we're trying to see different ways of, you know, providing vegetables and food and, and herbs for, for the folks in the space. Um, and in terms of my own projects, well, I, I am working on a book manuscript that sort of looks at different projects that are anchored in mutual aid and solidarity in Puerto Rico. Um, and I'm looking at a street library project, um, feminist pantries that also emerged in Puerto Rico after COVID-19, the work of the Colectivo Casurbano de Calle, and also the work of La Colectiva Feminista en Construcción, which is a Black feminist organization um, that has been raising awareness of systemic racism, anti-Black racism, 
colonial violence in Puerto Rico. So um, I'm looking at these sorts of projects as interrelated because they are in a lot of ways, they stem from the afterlives of the student movement, but also as forms of um, self-determination in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that I often struggle with as a, as a faculty member working with doctoral students is how to help doctoral students who want who come in, into the program wanting to do participatory action research, but oftentimes not having relationships with communities. And, and I, I always appreciate the spirit and the ethic that the students bring, but I, I'm often hesitant because of the practical aspects of implementing that spirit. And, and I wonder, um, as, as, a, as someone who did participatory action research, or, or at least did work about participatory action research through your dissertation, what sort of advice would you give um, future practitioners? And specifically, I'm thinking about uh, future uh, uh, doctoral students or graduate students who might be interested in, in doing participatory action research. So I think what I was really wanting to look at in my own work was the process itself, the collaborative process. What happens? Because a lot of the times we look at sort of what, what is the end product Mm -hmm. of participatory action research. So in thinking about what are ways that you can come at it that are not necessarily, you know, crossing an ethical boundary of, you know, authorship, right? Because the work produced is collective, as I mentioned earlier. So looking at processes, what, what works, what doesn't work? How, what does that look like? I think there should be more work in theorizing that or even thinking about that in practical ways, like practical yeah. ways to apply that, not necessarily this is my dissertation and it's participatory action research. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, I think being really honest, like not everything it can be fully participatory, right? And mm -hmm. if we think about it that way and we kind of let that go in ways that maybe we can look towards action research or elements of participatory action research in the work, I think there's a lot less pressure because mm -hmm. I think we come in it with like, we want to do it purely and we want to do it like 100%. And there's so many challenges, like even with like time and, um, you know, I feel bad a lot of times asking for folks that are not in the academic space to 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 even be able to come to a lot of these meetings. So also, if you end up doing that, I would say to a student, know that it's going to it's these things are going to happen outside of work hours outside, you know, they're going to take weekends, they're going to take nights, they're going to take you rearranging yourself to other folks' schedule because that's what it is. And, you know, that's sort of comes with, with that, um, with that territory. So I don't know, I would say like keep doing work about PAR, ethnographies of PAR, qualitative research of PAR mm -hmm. or action research, because I think that the ethical piece is so important in that. And I think that should never be sort of dropped to the side when, when doing this kind yeah. of yeah, well, so I'm 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 always struggling too with like what are the non-negotiables, right? Like whether you're doing participatory action research or PAR-inspired research or research about PAR, like mm -hmm. what are the non-negotiables? What are the sort of like okay, this is non-negotiable. If this is not there, then then you can't even use the term. Like what what would you say? Like what's non-negotiable for you as a practitioner? I, I don't know if folks are going to agree, with <laughs> but um, to me, having a project that is thought up of 
with the folks that are outside the academic space, not bringing in a pre-packaged project mm-hmm. um, or even being able to develop, even if that's the case, like some aspect that is sort of outside of that, that is fully done with folks outside the academic space from its inception to its end. To me, mm-hmm. that would be a non-negotiable in doing that work. So the oral histories, I wouldn't necessarily call it full on par mm-hmm. um, because we already had that in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, authorship is important. Mm-hmm. So whatever the way that this is disseminated, and we, we talked a little about ways, yeah. reports, articles, websites, exhibits, like any sort of way needs to be credited to the folks that are not in the academic side. That yeah. needs to happen. I think that that I cannot take someone else's work and say it's mine because it is not. Yeah. Um, so I think that's also a way yeah. um, to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I appreciate that piece. I think it's important also to remember that publishing articles is not the only way to disseminate knowledge, right? And, and I think that sometimes uh, the conversation gets stuck on this uh, uh, issue of authorship of academic articles as if that were the sort of preeminent way to share knowledge, right? Like, and especially now with, and you've, you've given us so many really beautiful examples from your own work in terms of other ways of disseminating knowledge that allow for the participants to be credited and to be, to give them the, uh, uh, in a sense, the kind of the, the authorial uh, relationship to the knowledge. So anyways, uh, those are all the questions I have. I don't know if there's anything that we that you'd like to share with our audiences um, of the Wiper podcast, anything we haven't talked about um, or. Well, we're on Facebook and Instagram. Um, so for folks that want to find out about the sort of work that we do and have that visual of, of the work, um, everyone's more than welcome to visit if they can. And yeah, I appreciate the time and having me here, Ruin. Yeah, no, it's been great My uh, to share this with my Puerto Rican sister. And I look forward to hopefully at some point having a project where we can collaborate, uh, whether it's in Puerto Rico or wherever it is that, that I find us. So, so thanks again for taking the time to chat uh, more. Uh, very exciting work. And, um, and yeah, and good luck with your new position and your move. You're moving to the Midwest from Thank you. the Dominican. So. <laughs> yes. yes, a big change. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us in today's episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Aurora Santiago Ortiz. I found it fascinating, the conversation about how COVID has affected our work as practitioners, which is something that we have been looking into here at the Youth Research Lab and that we hope to continue exploring as our work shifts under the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. I also found it really interesting to have conversations about the continued uh, relevance of solidarity, as well as thinking about different ways of disseminating knowledge. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for our next episode, and we will see you next time.